Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge and respect the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I extend that respect to any First Nations people we might have here with us today. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Michaela Dreberg about how being on a local council compares to being on a board. First, let me tell you about Michaela. Michaela is a director of South Eastern Melbourne Primary Healthcare Network and Connect Health and Community, and she's previously chaired the Board of Governance for Women's Health East. She's got over 20 years of experience in public health, education and community engagement, and has previously served as mayor and a ministerial advisor. We'll touch on that. In addition to this role, she is also a teaching associate and course advisor for Monash University. Michaela is particularly passionate about how our gender and where we live, work and play can influence our lives. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Michaela. Thanks for having me, Helia. I'm so looking forward to this conversation in oh so many ways. But as always, before we get to councils and boards and what are the similarities, we want to dig a bit deeper about you and we're going to use some of these new questions that I explored in the first podcast of this year. So, Michaela, tell me, where were your mum and dad born and do you know where your ancestors are from and where were you born or where did you grow up and do you have any siblings? Oh, there's a few questions to respond to there, Helia, so I'll, I'll try and get them in the right order. So, um, my family are actually from Sri Lanka. So, if you see my name, it's not an immediate association, but for those of you that are in the know, then you would recognise it as a burger name. It's not a derogatory term, it's a term that's used to describe Eurasian, so the Sri Lankans that were of European descent. So that's my my ancestry is uh, on my father's side are German and Dutch descent and from my mother's side are English descent. Um, so mum and I have got very, you can see that in our aesthetics, uh, we're more mixed looking as such. So sometimes people go, really, are you both your parents Sri Lankan? Yes, they are. And several generations back. And that's my background in terms of where my parents were born and uh, my ancestry. 
interesting stuff already. I'm loving these questions. Where were you born or where did you grow up and what about any siblings? So my parents migrated here in the 70s and they originally moved to Western Australia and then came across to Victoria. So that's where I was born. I was born in the Dandenong Hospital in the late 70s, so a proud Gen Xer just scraping in there. And I have a twin sister, so I shared Ah. the womb, shared a bedroom for many years and uh, share a birth date, obviously, as well. Oh, my goodness. Is she an identical twin? We are as fraternal as you can get. Um, And a a funny little uh, story is my sister's name is Bianca and Bianca means white for those of you that speak Italian and she does not match that description. Uh, So it was always a little ongoing joke there that our names didn't necessarily match what we look like. (laughs) And if you're as fraternal as you can get, does that mean people sometimes think or not even think, do that people sometimes say? you're not twins. No, that can't be right. People see what they want to see. So some people think that we look very similar, even though Mm -hmm. we have very different colouring, our hair's different, our eye colour's different, our stature and our body type's different. But some people will swear black and blue that we look very much like sisters and then others can see what you can see and we don't look anything alike. A friend of mine had a baby using a egg donor. And it's fascinating for her, the number of people that say, oh, my God, she looks so much like you. And she's like, "Mm, I'm not sure that she does. But anyway, thanks for saying. So you're right. People do see what they want to see. Oh, look, I'm going to ask the other brief questions if I can. So do you know the names of the traditional owners or the first peoples where you grew up? I haven't double checked where I grew up, but it would be one off where I live now. So I'm right on the cusp of the Mm -hmm. Wurundjeri people and the Mm -hmm. Boonarong people. I haven't ventured too far. I'm about 20 minutes away from where I grew up in Dandenong. And how many languages do you speak? English first and foremost and a smattering of Italian was what I learned growing up in high school and university. So I'm still, I can get by, but I would not call myself fluent. And I'm married to uh, Indigenous New Zealander. So he speaks fluent, but I speak a smattering of Māori, as he would yes. say it, um, yes. especially for our kids to make sure that they're aware of the language and their, ah. their um, background. Right. So do the kids speak Māori? They like to rip off their shirts and do a haka <laughs> and they sing lullabies with me, but they don't understand the language just yet. They're, they're just yeah. little. They're two and four. Oh, okay. Oh, how magnificent. Um, and finally, where do you feel your place or your home is? I feel like home's where your heart is. So, you know, where I live now, and I'm very fortunate to live very close by to both my parents and my sister. So I was able to to see them through various lockdowns, going for walks and things like Mm. that. So where I live right now is very much my home, but heading down to the dandy market also feels like home. And with my family coming from Western Australia, and that's where all our extended family are, that feels like home when I go there too. Not for a while, but when we get back there again, it'll be nice to go back to my second home. All right. Well, let's get on with our conversation today. So we're talking about local councils and boards, and you have been both the mayor of a council and a board member or currently a board member. So I would love to hear your reflections about how a boardroom compares to the council chamber. 
I'm looking forward to sharing them, Helia. Uh, I think there's a lot of synergies, but then mm. there are some huge contrasts as well. I think there's lessons from both of them. And I think that it's their untapped areas that I think mm. could be quite attractive to people that they might not have thought about before. So someone that has years of governance experience, having worked in local government, I think have got an excellent platform to be able to work in the board environment and may not initially mm. see that and then as well um, those of you that are seeking directorships and you know it can be a very competitive process to have a think about something like local government which again is competitive but mm. has a similar environment with a focus on governance but also um, you get to work directly with your communities and that's really satisfying. A couple of interesting reflections there already that council experience if you've got it as Governance experience, I always encourage people to think about governance experience rather than board experience because board is quite limiting. Whereas if you think about governance experience, it might include council, it might include reporting to a board, it might include being on a committee, whatever it may be, rather than boardroom per se. So what are the similarities? What are the, you know, being the mayor of, which is basically in my head, the chair of the board. So being in the council chamber and being in the boardroom, what are the things that you've observed that are similar? Well, you've touched on um, some similarities there, hell yeah. So, you know, a council is made up of a number of different council laws, which are similar to board directors. It can range in number from, let's say, five through to 11, which is where I was at the city of Monash. A board, again, can range in the composition that you have in terms of the amount of directors on a board as well. The chair is similar to the mayor of the day, but it doesn't need to be. Again, similar to a board as well. A chair will usually chair a meeting. A mayor will usually chair a meeting. But there are some opportunities to delegate that to someone else. Um, it rarely happens in council land, but I was a deputy chair and I worked very closely with a fabulous mayor at the time who really gave me an opportunity to grow into the in the role and gave me opportunities to, to chair meetings and to be the spokesperson for key issues that I was particularly knowledgeable and passionate about. As I understand it in local council, the mayor is either re-elected or changes every year, which is something that would be different to a boardroom because the chair might be the chair for four years or whatever it may be. Yeah, so that's a key difference. It doesn't need to happen. There's certainly circumstances where you have mayors of the day. There's a couple of instances where you're directly elected by the people as the mayor for that entire term. There's certainly been examples of mayors that are elected repeatedly mm. by their peers. So that certainly happens as well. But generally speaking, amongst your council team, there is a different mayor elected every year, mm. which is very different from a chair and where we really look at making making sure we've got that continuity and if there is succession planning you know well ahead that you're planning for that and making sure you've got someone else that can fill those shoes in local government you would expect it's different every year yeah I don't necessarily think is a good thing I confess it's one of the things whilst I think there are many similarities that changing of the chair or the mayor each year I it must make it very difficult So, because you, you just get the dynamics you just get in the swing of things and then you're moving on so how long were you mayor for? Uh, I was one year. Okay. It sounds like you were deputy mayor for a year. It sounds like the mayor you're working with was very supportive and helped to build. So that was seamless stepping into the mayor role. 
I actually had a break in between. So oh. I was elected twice mm-hmm. into um, my councillor position and mm-hmm. I was a deputy mayor in my first term. Then there was a, a break and then I was re-elected and in the first year in the new term, I was mayor. So that was a different dynamic. It was working with an entirely new team, a different composition of the types of people that were in that team and even seeing themselves as a team sometimes was quite challenging. Yes. Interesting. So that's the other thing that might be slightly different is that there might be more turnover every four years when people are elected as opposed to boards that can probably stagger that changeover and that succession planning a little more smoothly. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in local government, you're elected to the position. There really isn't much quality assurance. When I was first elected, there weren't any requirements prior to becoming a councillor. They've since introduced training that needs to be completed. So there's an attempt to have some, I guess, expectation in terms of a baseline of knowledge from councillors, which is different from what is best practice in a boardroom where you would, you know, identify a skill matrix, have a look at the type of composition that you want to have in terms of different types of experience in the room and actively pursue making sure that you meet that diversity in the boardroom. It's a bit more up to chance in local Mm. government. Yeah, it's interesting. And is there other ways then that councils can bring in, I guess, that you know, whether it's the diversity of views. I mean, technically, of course, the councillors reflect the community and therefore would reflect the diversity of that community. In the city of Monash, where you are, that's one of the most diverse communities in Victoria. So did the council actually represent the diversity of the community? Uh, It did. The first year that I was elected, we were a very odd example of what a council is comprised of so Mm. out of 11 we were fairly gender balanced there was five out of 11 there was five out of 11 that were under the age of 30 again about five or six of us came from clearly culturally diverse backgrounds a real mix on there and I thought that was the norm until Mm. I went to state and national conferences and realized that was not the norm especially when I was asked whose date I was um, because the expectation still was that you met the stereotype of what an elected official might look like. Oh no were you really asked that? I've been pointed to the childcare conference rather than the local government conference. I've had many stories. One that really stands out for me, because gender was never an issue that was at the forefront of my mind, Helia, until I was elected to council and then it became very obvious and was in your face. But a real standout for me was when um, someone sent me an email about her daughter looking through the local paper with her and she pointed out to her daughter, oh, look, at you know, this is our local mayor. And her daughter looked at her and said, are you sure? Because aren't all mayors supposed to be old, white, bald men with beards? She was very specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her mum thought it was um, comical and sent it through to me. And I initially mm-hmm. went, oh, isn't that cute? And then stopped myself and went, that's not cute at all. Why mm-hmm. does a 10-year-old girl in this day and age have that view? So we when it, we reached out to them. I ended up going to a school and talking about what I did as a mayor. And I think that's really one of the most important things that local governments can do is to really break those stereotypes of what people perceive an elected official should look like. And by the very nature of, in some ways, a little bit of dumb luck of how our council was made up, it broke those stereotypes. People could see what they could be. How did you end up 
in the council chamber? How did you end up choosing to run for election? Because it's quite an arduous process. You talk about it being hard to get into the boardroom. I'm not sure it's easier to get elected. What prompted you to do it? And, and tell us about your campaign and how you ended up in the, in the council chamber. I knew councillors existed. So mm-hmm. that was probably the one thing. I knew a few people that were councillors. Not, I don't know if many people are familiar with the different levels of government we have in Australia and that there's these things called councillors. So, you know, that was the first stumbling block that I was able mm-hmm. to address. For me, I've always done some sort of voluntary work. I'd always been on a committee and I just saw that as an extension of that. It was really important for me to be a part of um, shaping the community where I lived. So mm-hmm. that was really my my driver behind that. And I honestly thought it was a voluntary role and I was just, it would be like being on a committee. So I got a little bit of a rude shock when I uh, discovered what was involved with being a counsellor, that there was such a strong focus on governance, Mm. the community expectations that you had through correspondence or just people meeting people on the street, and then just the the politics that does come into play as well. Which, again, is probably one of the differences, I think, between the boardroom, but I'm wondering whether it should be one of the differences, around that the accessibility you have, you know, you're elected, and that accessibility to the community in terms of having street stalls or whatever it may be for people to be able to give their views to you. You don't often see boards doing those sorts of things. There might be walk-arounds in hospitals of the board, but it's not deep or the deeper community engagement that councillors do. And I'm wondering if that's something that boards can learn from. I'm not sure boards always have to go out and do the street stall, but I'm wondering about your reflections around that community engagement. It's a really interesting area and a challenging area, especially for health services. So, you know, I've purposely chosen to be a part of boards that impacted by communities or with communities. So all mine are related to, to healthcare. And it's a really challenging space for people to authentically engage with their communities. Uh, Boards are not alone, as are the health sector in terms of how do you authentically make sure that we're engaging with our communities, consumer voice, the lived experience, elevating the stakeholder voice to that board level so that they're incorporated in decision making. So there's Mm -hmm. certainly, there's a lot where local government, I think, have done excellent and are doing excellent things in this area to make sure that community views are incorporated in decision making. Um, Mm. It is a a huge challenge in governance land in general and directors are certainly turning their minds to that direction especially as there's more and more emphasis on that lived experience but there's no silver bullet and there's no easy answer so I think we're starting to to figure out how you can exactly do that but there's yeah there's no magical answer to that we're still learning. Yeah, and I think both boards and councils are learning some of those things and how to do it better. And again, particularly during pandemic times, how to do things a bit differently because the street stalls won't necessarily be happening and the community engagement's not happening in the same way as well. Yeah, so how do you reflect the end user as such for the organisations that you're involved in? So, you know, whilst our our method may vary, I think as a director, it's really Mm. keeping that at the forefront of your mind when you are making decisions, you know, and um, one of your remits is to make sure that you're supporting an organisation to be viable, but also what does this mean for our end user? What does it mean for our consumers is the term we use in health. Um, I think that's, if you can just make sure that you're asking yourself that question with any decisions, Um, or putting it out there to your colleagues, I think that can help us make better decisions. Absolutely. Keeping the 
the stakeholders or the shareholders, depending on what sort of organisation, or the stakeholders and the shareholders, so it's not just shareholders who are being taken account of. When were you the mayor? How long ago? Almost 10 years ago. It's a little scary. Uh, I was first elected in uh, 2008 and then again in 2012. So that first term of the new team, 2012-2013, was when I was mayor. Social media was just coming in. So there's certainly a different emphasis on that now. But it was was there and we were responsive. But there's certainly a different expectation for people that are in those roles now. I mean, council meetings often have the community turn up. They are encouraged to turn up. These days they are often webcast so people can be watching from wherever they happen to be. How does that impact the conversation, the discussion and the decision making of council when you know you've literally got people watching the conversation as you go? Uh, luckily I was there pre-recording so yes. you know people couldn't play back what you may or may not have said although I could see how that'd be handy as well but there's definitely that transparency that you don't have in the boardroom often people would call for a division so it was recorded if the the votes were split um, or mm-hmm. you wanted it to be transparent that you didn't agree with that decision um, that's yeah. a key difference with board as well but it still happens in council once a decision's made that's a decision of the council or that's a decision of the board but yes. you don't tend to see that so and so didn't actually agree with that decision and having an audience there's certainly some people that like to perform for their audience and there's that added weight and pressure of being able to get your point across but also recognizing you're not performing for that audience. You're not there speaking to the audience that's there. You are debating emotion in front of you and trying to convince your colleagues to share your views. So you really had to make sure you were focusing on that because that was your primary reason for being there. I can see some real advantages. You know, it makes me wonder what would happen if board meetings were webcast? What would happen if board meetings were all held publicly? Mm. There's certainly a move towards that where I know there are boards that are considering having the occasional open board meeting with the focus on transparency. So it'd be interesting to see if that happens a little bit more. I don't know how many people would be interested in sitting through a board meeting, uh, but there (laughs) certainly would be. You know, at council, you had your committed people that were there week in and week out because they were committed to the issues or they were committed to weeding out people that they didn't want representing them. And that's the biggest, biggest difference, hell yeah, between being on council and a board is I'm yet to be in a board meeting where I've got 500 people screaming at me. Interesting. Okay, so how do you, when you're in a council meeting and you've got 500 people screaming at you, how do you handle that both as an individual who's there to make sensible, smart decisions, whilst you're also trying to support others to make sensible, smart decisions? How do you do that? Yeah, I, I was the mayor at the time when we had some some really difficult decisions to make. At the time, aged care was a part of one of the services that my mm. council was delivering. We had two aged care facilities and we were making a decision whether or not we stepped away from that mm. and allowed a specialist provider to, to take over those facilities instead. So it was a hugely emotional issue. You know, we talked about my family. I've grown up with grandmas in my house, you know, through my childhood. So it was very emotive issue. It was very emotional for for communities that were directly affected as well. So we did have audiences we've never had before. 
hundreds of people coming along. Um, some were respectful, others were very passionate and vocal about their issues. Uh, we had a public question time, so they um, were extended way beyond where what we would normally do. But I felt like at the time it was really important for people to feel like they were heard. So we yeah. made it a point to be able to respond to them. But then we also needed to get on with the meeting of the day. So it was mm. finding that balance of making sure we were able to respond to people, but also get on with the numerous decisions we had to make at council. Interesting. And were people satisfied in the end? You were never going to satisfy anyone, <laughs> but it was, you know, we just tried to be as transparent as possible, as respectful mm. as possible. And that that was our approach to it. You know, with the questions and answers, I tried to use people's names. I tried to look at them when I was responding. But, you know, you had an audience. So there was performers around you yes. as well. And, you know, the politicking that comes in with council as well. Um, not necessarily party aligned. It was just mm. really, you know, people that wanted to play to their audience. That's came up and that's what you don't tend to have in a boardroom. I wonder if that's because there is no audience literally so therefore people aren't playing to the audience. It's it's an interesting one. I, th I think it would mean that the dynamics of the boardroom would be very different to what they are. I'm not sure what the answer is whether that's better or worse. Uh, I think it's as you said earlier it's about keeping your community and your stakeholders front of mind however that might be and it might be having them in the room but it might just be having them in the mind as well but ensuring they're with you in the decision-making in some way, shape or form. That's definitely where diversity, either around a council table or a board table, mm -hmm. is really critical. Having those diversity of views and the different perspectives that you bring can just bring about stronger decision-making. If you have that homogenous one view, they're not going to take into account your end user's point of view if they haven't experienced it themselves or just the different potential ramifications of your decision as well. I distinctly remember at local government once there was, you know, an increasing amount of births in the area. We, it was very logical. We needed to increase the amount of staffing in maternal child health care. So it was just a quick no-brainer decision. But I distinctly remember one of the staff coming up to me afterwards and saying that wouldn't have happened with the last council. And at the time we had a gender balanced council. And so, and again, a number of us had babies while we were on council as well. So it was understanding that perspective. There was no argument against it. I've heard of other stories of councils looking to shut down story times at libraries because they didn't think it was needed, but they <laughs> didn't have that direct experience, just how much they were loved and needed by their yes. communities. By both the children and the parents who are dropping the kids off for story time so that you get five seconds of of headspace for yourself as well. <laughs> oh, Michaela, so much in there about how councils operate and how boards operate and, you know, just some questions for consideration, I think, around what boards could learn from the council chamber, even though there are some similarities. What are some things that could be considered? Maybe not picked up, but at least considered. What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think something that local government does well is that decision making is often made within the context that this mm. decision will play out and the impact will play out. I don't know how well boardrooms tend to do that, putting it in the context of the decision that they're making, mm. uh, especially when you have a focus rightly on the different skills and experience you want to have around the boardroom. You don't necessarily have the sector experience or that lived experience. So that's where we're seeing a growing emphasis on making sure that we are having those voices heard or taken into account for our decisions. So mm. I think that's a big one that we can learn from local government. 
I also think that, you know, they really complementary in terms of if you are seeking out directorships and you are finding that you're not getting a lot of, a lot of love with your applications, but you are really community driven. I think that you should definitely start to think about, well, maybe I'll have a look at local government. Mm. You'll get that really rich experience in terms of governance. If you really love playing in that strategic field, you are very much focused on strategy because you're not only shaping the communities of where you live, but also the communities that don't even exist yet. So you're very much future focused but it isn't just a pure directorship so it's not just about numbers and it's not just about papers it really is about people Mm. which arguably any directorship is anyway but in local government in particular there is a very heavy focus on the impact that you're having with your communities so you definitely need to keep that in mind if that's not something for you or something you're particularly passionate about then I wouldn't encourage you to go down that local government road but for your listeners that are very much focused on not-for-profit and having impact with people, it's something else they might want to have a think about in the future. I did a interview with Ruth McGowan, who wrote the book Get Elected a year ago or something, but I'll make sure I put a link to that in the show notes as well. So folks, if you're inspired to think about the council chamber as your governance experience, have a listen to Ruth's episode as well. It'll give you some tips about how to, unsurprisingly, get elected. Well, that's one resource I'm going to share with the Take On Board community. Is there any resources you would like to suggest that we can share with the Take On Board community? Aside from your podcast, I'm an avid listener and I know a number of people are. Podcasts for me are a really efficient use of your time to Mm. learn whilst you're walking or driving or public transporting. So I look at it as efficient learning. I've really become quite a fan of podcasts just in the last couple of years. Being a director, it can be quite lonely. You don't really know anyone else outside your boardroom unless you sit on a few different boards. So it's really ways to have more communities of practice, more opportunities to learn from your peers outside your walls. Oh, fantastic. Well, there's some great resources in there and I'll make sure I put links to all of those in the show notes. And because you touched on the mentoring, I'll also put a link to the episode we did with Megan May, who was one of the mentees in that program, and Sandy DeWolf, who was one of the mentors in that program. So people can find out more about mentoring as well. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much, Michaela. There is lots of little gems in there for people in thinking about governance and how we can do governance differently, better. Thank you so much for sharing your experience both in the boardroom and in the council chamber with the Take On Board community today. Thanks for having me, Helia. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.